You're listening to Two Sons of Tatooine. If there's a bright center to the universe, you're listening to the podcast that it's farthest from. And here are your hosts, Jonathan and Nathan. Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Sons of Tatooine. I am one of your hosts, Nathan, a.k.a. NP Bro, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jonathan Cohn. We are joined as well by longtime friend of the podcast and recent con- convert to the cult of Star Wars books, uh, Trent. Hello, hello. <laughs> Not a Trent, but a Trent. Uh, <laughs> our topic, of course, for this week is going to be Catalyst, a Rogue One story. We're going to cover all the action in the book, um, so goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good That's, a great, that's a good joke. It's a good joke. It's a good joke. In all seriousness, though, there is a, a lot to unpack in this book uh, by James Lucino. Lucino. Who goes by Jim Kirk. I mean, Lucino. <laughs> uh, so just to start off, Trent, what were your overall thoughts on Catalyst? Oh, man, I, I had a hard time reading it because uh, the whole time I was reading it, I was just thinking about how Jonathan loves the book, and I was having a middling <laughs> time with it. It was fun. I, enjoy, like, I The writing was good, and a lot of the... the the relationships and that kind of stuff was really good, uh, and and most people's critiques are probably the same. Not a lot of action, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it was it was it was well written. I just I was wanting more wars in my Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> you found you found the fault in your Star Wars. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh, if you want to tune out of the podcast now, nobody <laughs> nobody will blame you. Thank you. You made it through <laughs> a minute and a half. So heavy on the you know character building and light light on certainly any kind of action sequences. Um, Any other main general just impressions you wanted to give Trent? Uh, Just uh, it was cool to see a lot of the you know characters that we either hear about or see in Rogue uh, or yeah in Rogue One. It's it's just you know there was specifically one character that I was really excited to see more of, and that was cool to see that in the book. Uh, had some lore questions. So it was it was very provoking, thought wise, mm-hmm. in terms of how like the Death Star came together and the pieces behind it, and the synthetic crystals and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so there was there was definitely interest there, uh, but I did find myself kind of longing for uh, action. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I assume Jonathan may be asking my overall impressions, and then he's going to guide us to some things after this. So. I listened to this driving for about half of it, and the rest of it when I was like pressure washing my driveway and my house. So nice. a good a good five or six action hours of just a sweeping back and forth motion, and uh, the book did not help me <laughs> to stay did not. awake. Nope. <laughs> um, just a lot of crystallography and you know interceptions of of meetings between you know Krennic and. And Galen and Lyra and all of this stuff. Um, my impressions, uh, honestly, I think I would have enjoyed it a little bit better had the audiobook done a better Tarkin and a yes. better Krennic. Yes. Do you agree with me on I that? I totally agree. And it what what bothered We're spoiled, me spoiled though because Mark Thompson's yeah. his Tarkin is so good. Oh yeah, and and even his Krennic was very yeah. very good. It's a it's more of a trashy lower brow British accent, not trashy, but. Definitely less yeah. less uppity, and Tarkin is the most uppity yeah. of any, you know. Well, I was going to save this point for later, but it's good that you bring it up because uh, the th- previously 
up until about, you know, two or three years ago, there were two main Star Wars audiobook narrators. You had Mark Thompson, who did a majority of them, and the rest were, just about all of them, the rest were done by um, this guy, Jonathan Davis. And I listened yeah. to, they both did back-to-back episodes on a podcast called Legends Library, which is a fantastic podcast. You should all listen to it after you listen to ours. And that podcast... The, both of them were brought on and asked the same question, and they had opposite answers. Jonathan Davis really struggles, and his biggest thing that he has to work on is the is the the voices of the characters. But he yes. loves but his narration. His was narration great. is perfect. Okay, however, I agree. I however, so jo- uh, Mark Thompson will be the first to admit that his strength <clears throat> is in his characters' voices, but mm-hmm. his weakness is when he gets into narration. And hmm. so they have opposite uh, strengths and opposite weaknesses. So some people, the audiobook fans, the narration is more important to them. And so for some people, they actually really like Jonathan Davis's more, so they really like this. And then for some people, it's all about the voices. So I know other people who really like Mark Thompson. I'm kind of in the middle. I kind of like, I prefer a balance. And... Uh, if I have to choose between the two, I'm more used to Jonathan Davis because I don't listen to that many audiobooks. But the ones mm-hmm. I have listened to are all Jonathan Davis. But I do like Mark Thompson. So, what do you think, Trent? Would uh, Mark Thompson be the better narrator for the Gospel of Luke, and then you know Jonathan Davis for if we're going through numbers? You know, obviously, <laughs> yeah, there's, different, there's different, yeah, different audiences. Well, I was, I know this might be a little bit of a side tangent, but that, that, Jonathan, your point brings me to a, a curiosity: what, what your preferences, what y'all's preferences are on somebody who's better at narration versus like uh, actually uh, accents or speaking. For sure, the voices, I'll have to say. The voices, yeah. So this is an interesting thing of recently, um, and it's not just Star Wars. A lot of uh, things are doing this now, but Star Wars in particular has moved into getting a voice actor who has some connection to the characters. For example, they got Ahsoka... They got the voice of Ahsoka for, for the Ahsoka novel. They got Ashley Eckstein. For the Padme novels, they got a Catherine Tabor. And while both of them nailed the voices of their respective characters of Ahsoka and of Padme, the rest of the book seemed off because they couldn't do the other voices because they're not trained to do the, the deep voices versus high voices to go back and forth like that. Voice actors like them in their caliber just do one voice all day long. And so it was very well, you know jarring. Who could do it? Mark Thompson. No. Well, uh, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> he does do no, it. I was actually going to say uh, the Obi Wan voice actor from the Clone Wars. Yes, James Arnold Taylor. Absolutely, James Arnold Taylor. He's he the one exception. A very huge girth of like mm-hmm. range for his voice types. And yeah. if you watch, like, I mean, oh yeah, like there's YouTube videos of him mm-hmm. doing literally hundreds of different characters, and none back, of them back, sound back. the same. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just just rattles them off. So he could he could probably jump in if he wanted to. But he could, but and, yeah. and he would, and he'd be willing to. But it is it is a different. It's an interesting thing because these guys, it does cost more to get them. So if they're gonna get a high profile voice actor, you know, it, 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 there's some things in there. Um, uh, but uh, so that is an interesting thing. There is a What's new Peter Cushing doing these days. We we need to we need to see if he needs a break from. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, I have some very unfortunate news for you, Nathan. Very. <laughs> we just get everything in the red, in the voice of Tarkin. That would have been great to just imagine if Cushing was still around to to voice Tarkin, or yeah. or a full on project 
with all of the actors. I will different say voices. I don't. Uh, I a full on a project on a novel like this is very difficult because there's so much narration interspersed with the dialogue that it's hard to cut between a narrator and a voice actor and back again. It would be a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. Whereas an audio drama is literally just dialogue with an occasional stage direction. Quote stage Isn't direction. Is it not like um? What's the one uh, where, where the it was the invasion in like the 1920s and yes, yeah, War eight. of the Worlds. <laughs> War of the Worlds. People are like the world is ending. <laughs> yes, and so, so that was was that a audio dramatization? It was an audio dramatization of a novel. Um, oh, yeah. uh, but that was that was a different time. The the way they were producing it was that that was their version of a movie at the time. Um, but I'm sitting there with the shaky like steel. You know, aluminum. Yeah. Wee, wee, wee. Yeah. Sound effects behind the camera. Exactly. <laughs> so I just want to see that Mark, like you know, Mark Thompson there with like a soundboard, like lightsaber effects that he's like pressing and like blaster fire as he's putting them in. Yeah. But it's not a not a soundboard. He just has like little toys and he's just like woo waving and stuff around. Okay. Now let's this get on book to the novel. I'm did sorry. have some music in it, um, uh, mm-hmm. but when oh, yeah. I listened to it at one point five speed, so the music sounded very very fast. So it was like, bum, 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 bum. And I was like, wait, what was that cue? <laughs> so Interesting. Yeah. So uh, to begin with, I thought we'd talk about um, uh, kind of like the, the, the characters and then also the acts. Um, uh, I, I, by the way, I didn't tip this. I really love this novel despite the lack of action. Uh, and I should point out that if you, if you felt this book lacked action, do not let that turn you off to James Lucino because he's written some books that are basically all action, such as his New Jedi Order books. And then he has books like this and Tarkin, which are very action light. So he kind of does both. But the first act was during the Clone Wars era. And I'll go to you first, Trent. Were you, what were you thinking when you first read it and you realized that, oh, we're reading a Clone Wars book? I was wildly confused. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody else does this. Or I love to do this, and I really appreciate that they put the timelines in the, in the beginning of the yep. book. Yep. And the timelines in this book, it says that it's after yeah. uh, Order 66, mm-hmm. essentially, after Revenge of the Sith. But yep. really, the first part of the book takes place before Order yep. 66. And so that, mm-hmm. that threw me off. I was like, I was expecting that. And so when I started reading, I, just, I found myself being very confused. And then it clicked, and I was like, oh, this is obviously because there's Jedi around. And there's, like, you know, there's things that Orson is interested in that the Jedi are interested in, the kyber crystals and that kind of thing. So there's So there's huge context clues to give you that clue really, really quickly. So I was confused, but once I got that and I started getting to the flow, I was like, Oh, okay. Cause there's that anticipation of order 66 to build, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which we've seen in several of the mediums. Um, so that was really fun. And you know that I'm not to, uh, take away anybody else's thunder from this moment, but that all, you know, culminated at the Orson Krennic moment or not Orson Krennic, uh, Galen Urso moment of, uh, there's that battle scene, and he's you know I think he he shouts something. He's like yells, I forget what he yells, but it's such I'm a Akbar. No, <laughs> it's definitely not what he yells. That's, that is definitely one of the more action intense moments, and uh, you know then Order sixty six is carried out, yeah. and right. uh, it's you know it's it's good. That that's that was a lot of fun. So I really enjoyed that first act, uh, and I kind of wish that the book was more set during that era. I think mm-hmm. that was I, more, yeah. I, I would totally agree on that. I think that that era is most is is the most familiar 
part of the book because even though it gets into the Empire mm-hmm. era, which we all know, this part of the Empire era, one to four years before the events of um, uh, one to four years after Order sixty six, is not really fleshed out that much. It is more now with something like Bad Batch coming out, but at the time Mm -hmm. it wasn't, so it wasn't quite as familiar. Uh, Nathan, what did you think of the opening scene of Clone of the 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 Clone Wars battle on I think it was Vault, and then uh, the imprisonment of Galen and Lyra? Oh yeah, I was trying to remember the opening scene, but I do remember (laughs) them being imprisoned. And the world of Vought, we, did, we got some world building. Yeah. I know that's one of the things that you're going to love about this book was obviously Coruscant got a ton of world oh, building. Yeah. We even had some like some species mentioned and mm-hmm. you had like some, I guess, almost like reservation ground, all kinds of cool stuff that was mentioned. The crystallography. Yeah. But this opening battle for me was, I, I, I wouldn't say I remembered the battle much. I just mm-hmm. remembered, okay, they get captured yeah. and she's pregnant and he's... Basically, he's kind of like looking out the window and like seeing her <laughs> and thinking about her. And I'm like, that reminds me. I remember daydreaming like, you know, back to middle school or high school and like looking out the window while thinking about a girl that was in another class. I'm like, <laughs> she's over in that window. She's over mm. in that, you know, building that was kind of adjacent, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that, that type of thing was all it reminded me of. I, I didn't think anything about the, 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 what were they called? The people of Vault. The Vaulty. The Vaulty. Uh, <clears throat> I, that was kind of a tough name to come up with. Yeah, whoever <laughs> came up with that, they're like, it's the best we can do. Volte, take it or leave it. So, I mean, the, the relationship they had with their, I don't know, it was kind of a neutral-ish. She was trying to be fair with, with Galen. Yeah. Um, and at that point, he's kind of working, he's really trying his best to stay neutral, but he's working with this other company who's, you know, somewhat yeah. neutral, working between the Separatists and, and the Republic at that time. And... He's he's obviously important enough that Vault wants to keep him. Um, I, I I think it was okay. It was it was fine set up. I remember it now that you brought it up, but I did not I did not remember the battle at all. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not. It was a fine enough opening though. It's not. A, it's not. It, it serves its purpose, which is to establish them in jail or in, in you know under house arrest. It doesn't necessarily. It's not meant to stand out as one of the great battles of the Clone Wars or anything like that because it really isn't that great of a battle by any standard, whether it's description in the book or just as a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it does, it does serve its purpose. I did like, there's a line in there with the, uh, that his, his captor basically says, we're separatists. We're not monsters <laughs> where she's like, yeah, you'll, you'll get to see your wife and, and hold your child right before, right after she's born. Wasn't there, um, if I remember, there was some kind of comment, like it was very reminiscent of Clone Wars episode where, well, there's only so many clone troopers to go around. Yeah. We don't have enough clone troopers to, like, just completely just mm-hmm. go and rescue everybody and yeah. just save your, you know, we're not like, we're not like battle droids where we can just mass produce them by the trillions, um, whatever. So I just, I do remember that now that you brought it up. Yeah. That was a good line. That and was very like, oh, of course, makes sense. And the book does flip back and forth and it flips at this point to following Krennic. And he's uh, he was with the Corps of Engineers, which they totally, totally stole that from Star Trek. Um, but he was with the Corps <laughs> of Engineers and then uh, kind of migrated over to work with the military. And um, did either of you catch there's a big briefing at the beginning where this one person is this one alien is briefing them on different weapons and the basic pre-design on the Death Star. Did either of you remember or capture who that alien was? Was it the guy from Genosis? No, Poggle the Lesser comes up later. 
Oh, later. Okay. okay. Yeah, that was but what I was thinking of. Now, in the yeah. first scene, it's Dr. Gubacher, who is um, uh, one of the aliens from a Clone Wars episode where it's uh, – uh, remember the, when the droids, it's like the five astromechs, that arc mm. where they're all, you know, going with the little teeny Mieber Gascon? Oh, no. In that arc. That arc. Okay, okay. <laughs> But in that arc, there's a scientist who's got, like, the tentacles, and he's floating, and he's outfitting all the droids. Mm, this, he ha- kind of has, oh, what's the name of that guy in Arsenic and Old Lace? The creepy guy? Uh, he's kind of got a voice like this in the Clone Wars, but it's modulated. And they kind of tried to mirror this in the book, but it was Sounds cool. like Genie from... <laughs> <laughs> Aladdin is what you well, sounded like. Aladdin now, is referencing <clears throat> the genie is referencing this actor oh. from from oh. our second old lace. He, he's he's That's, making that reference. So Tom Williams did a lot of impressions. He that, did. So. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, gotcha. I just really like. I was uh, like, oh, it's a cute. That's an interesting Clone Wars connection. And then they also reference other Clone Wars characters like Nuvo Vindi or um, Lock Durd, who are from season one of Clone Wars. So I was like, Jim Lucino did his homework. <laughs> I really liked that. Did you guys capture any of those, like, any Easter eggs or references in any of those, Trent? Um, I, t- I, yeah, I did read the book. I just felt like it was a couple months ago now. I, <laughs> I, I, do, I do remember, like, that during that, that period of time, it felt very Clone Wars. And that was probably mm-hmm. a big part of it was all those just, like, smaller references that I honestly probably didn't pick up on or some of them I might have. But most of them, I'm, pro- I'm sure, missed me very quickly. So Yeah. I, I just appreciated that. You know, Attack of the Clones, we've established this whole, like, Poggle the Lesser is like, if they find out we're planning to build this and, you know, we're, we're doomed. Yeah. And they, they throw back and pay off that line, which mm-hmm. had been basically abandoned in Episode 3. Yeah. So, really, the, the whole idea of the Death Star being a separatist plan had been almost forgotten. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And, and that was something that they re- absolutely brought just attention to. So, I appreciate yep. it. And so James Lucino had a really tough, tall order because in episode three, when they show the, um, uh, the Death Star under construction, he was really having like that, that set him back because that kind of changed in legends, at least that changed the timeline of what was happening. And so it was like, oh, no, now they've already started production of the Death Star. They've already gotten this far on it. How do we how do we match that? And so what he did was he combined the Episode 2 knowledge of the Death Star with the Episode 3 knowledge and infused some Clone Wars stuff by adding in Poggle, referencing the whole Battle of Geonosis, and then striking a deal with Poggle, sending him back, and then Poggle sabotaged it, which is why the station only has the rings. Yeah, and that was never really clear. You know, Poggle, in this whole story, like... I was like, oh, cool. He's on board. He's get his hive. And every time Krennic seems to go to him and is like, hey, what's up with your workers? They seem to like they were working great. And now they're now killing they each other. Rebelling. <laughs> and, and, you know, Poggle's all like, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big yeah. deal. You know, they're just a bunch of, you know, workers. If we we'll just get some more if they, you know, kill them if you have to. <laughs> I'm like, OK, Pog- what's going on with Poggle? Like, he doesn't seem. He's very mercenary. He doesn't really have a lot of respect for his own people, you learn. He's kind of just mm. uh, uh, whatever helps himself. And I think that the only reason he accepted the offer, the plea deal, was because he knew he'd be able to escape eventually. So he sacrifices 
tens of thousands, if not like millions of drones just so he can escape with his one little ship. And I'm like, uh, you deserve to be cut in half in, uh, in Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> and I also, I did, the, the first couple times I read this, I remembered, wait, Poggle dies in Revenge of the Sith, so he can't stay part of the project too long. So I knew that yeah. had to, he had to reunite with the Separatists at some point. So I'm glad that they also merged that. Because at the end of Clone Wars, all we saw of him was in Republic custody. So Clone Wars didn't solve that issue. Hmm. You're right. He had really thread a needle there with, like, the production of this thing. Oh, yeah. That's, that's impressive. I didn't even think about the, about the working with the things that he had uh, previously been written. So That is actually one of uh, James Lucino's great strengths. He wrote a prequel to Episode 1 called um, Cloak of Deception, which basically fixed a lot of the timeline issues for that. And then he wrote a prequel to Episode 3 called uh, Labyrinth of Evil. Both of these are legends. And... Labyrinth of Evil was able to retcon what was happening in the Clone Wars line of novels with the 2D Clone Wars, and they matched up perfectly in his book. So oh, that's awesome. And uh, going back to one more uh, re- little reference before I go back to the macro, because this we should overall focus on the macro, but I have one more micro thing, which is, did either of you recognize the name Hypori? No. Oh, what, was it, what was it again? It's, yeah, Hypori. I recognized it. I did not associate it correctly with its, with its prior source. So um, Hypori is the name. <clears throat> remember in uh, the 2D Clone Wars where uh, you have all those ships that are crashing the planet and then all the droids are marching into, towards one ship and then Grievous comes out is and kills the all planet? the Jedi? Yeah, well, they're all hiding in the wreckage. Yeah, yeah, that's that planet. And I will quickly read a passage. I'm pulling a mic self. I have a passage ready. Um, I, will, <laughs> I will read a passage from the book. Uh, and the passage says, uh, The hulk of a crashed acclimator-class cruiser stood as a grim memorial to a pitched battle in which a group of Jedi Knights had been taken by surprise. And so oh. in that one sentence, he makes a huge reference and it just, you know, if you don't know it, it flies over you. But I just love that, like, because the story group doesn't require this type of a thing. The story group does not say, hey, use, use this Easter egg because most Star <clears throat> Wars books have very few. But James Lucino mm. loves this. And so he's always he's like, I need to include a planet. I'm going to make a planet that someone's going to know. Very, mm-hmm. very few people. <laughs> so I, I at least like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the reasons why James James Lucino is one of my favorites, because he gets the references. But back to the macro. Uh, This book had a lot of similarities to the concept of the Manhattan Project, um, uh, which is the the, the development of the nuclear bomb. uh, And Galen Erso, therefore, was uh, partially designed. I I forgot the name of the guy off the top of my head that partially designed the nuclear bomb, but they also tried to make him out to be similar to Albert Einstein in that he was so entrenched in his work and very much a political idealist and almost a refugee because Einstein was a refugee from Germany. Uh, He's a refugee from, you know, Vault. And so there were a lot of similarities made. And I guess, did you guys get, or I like, I should say, the kind of deeper questions that the book asks about super weapons, about military might, and about war versus peace? And I'll go to Nathan first. Uh, So, I mean, Galen's obviously... He's 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 very one tracked, I think. Yeah. I don't know that 
his opinion ever changes. And we're definitely made to think, okay, his, his opinion is the right one. Um, but there's, there's at least an argument to be made for, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I obviously I think Star Wars politics doesn't have to match real world politics. Yeah. So you don't have to think like, <clears throat> you don't have to think one thing in Star Wars and mm-hmm. say, well, that's not consistent with exactly. what I believe about America. <laughs> so, you know, I find myself going, well, it's a different universe entirely, Levy. There's yeah. a whole other, you, know, you just can't even compare. Uh, so, I mean, what was it? Was it something that they highlighted? No, but it was in there, and it made me think a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Um, having a super weapon, just the the morality of it, and would it be bad just to have it, or was it bad to for Galen himself really to just do even the research on weaponizing these crystals? Which was it evil to do that? No, of course not. And uh, you know, was you know the question asked that you know should. Should the Jedi have done more research into the crystals? Should the Jedi have allowed more? Could it have helped people? And could Galen's research be applied in a much more humanitarian way? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No questions there. Um, but there was just, just unlimited resources being just thrown his way to the point to where even the Empire is just like, hey, we, hey, we we're sending away a little bit too much resource. Yeah. You know? we got, we're going to have to put a stop on some of this. Like when the Empire does that, I, oh, wow. <laughs> They really, honestly, had to hold back on some stuff. I mean, this is crazy, because, I mean, for a while, he was getting anything he wanted immediately. Mm-hmm. And they addressed that. That was cool. That was interesting. But uh, for the morality, for the argument, for the weapon, it was, it was thought-provoking. Yeah. What, what does Trent have to say? So I would say this, is, uh, this was the most interesting part of the book for me, mm-hmm. other than the action bits at the beginning. Uh, number one, like the whole... I want to solve the energy problem. I mean, energy problem mm. has always been something that science has tried to explore or geniuses. It's, it's sort of like, <clears> the, <throat> it feels like it's the end game for really smart people. Uh, even Bill Gates even, you know, tried to solve some, some nuclear stuff. He's got some um, blueprints, for lack of a better word, drawn up for nuclear power uh, and how he can make it safe. It, it just feels like if, if, you're, if you're a smart dude... Eventually, you stumble across this problem, um, and so and and that even speaks to you mentioned the Manhattan Project, but even like Alfred Nobel with TNT, yeah. he invented mm-hmm. he invented it to like help build train tracks through mountains. Yeah, but then he realized quickly, oh, this is a weapon of destruction, <clears throat> and I have and it's <laughs> it's my fault, you know. So he yeah. he struggled with that depression wise. Um, so that that came up heavily when I read this book, just thinking about Galen Erso's struggle there and and i and obviously i'm reading the book after seeing the movie so in my mind it's mads mickelson's you know excellent like just somber yeah look. Mm-hmm. he has such a a great somber look yeah that he just carries the weight of the world on his eyebrows when he's like acting uh so in my mind that's what was playing out and and i don't know if you guys you guys i'm sure most people probably have come across somebody who's just incredibly smart mm-hmm. uh and they can honestly you meet these people and you're like man you're so good at everything that you do or the things that you're doing. You could go work anywhere. You could do anything. Mm. And, you know, they struggle with a lot of the same things where it's like, I want to make a difference. I want to, you know, I'm only interested in working on things that are impactful. Uh, But it, I I thought that was very realistic. You mentioned uh, it doesn't always have to quit one-to-one, but I do think that this uh, James did a good job writing in that realism of a genius 
having to struggle with, I want to make a difference, but also here, here is practically infinite resources in a topic that I'm really interested in, kyber mm-hmm. crystals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to pass that up. And so I think that was, I think that was realistic. It may not be something that resonates with a lot of people, but if you've ever come across people like that, or if you ever do come across people like that, know that they're, they just carry like a weight about them mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that I think was captured real well in this book. Yeah. You really see the talent and the, 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 the knowledge that he has and the unique skills, which for yeah. one shows why it's so important that the empire wants to bring him back because he really is uniquely situated to, to build the, the super laser. And also, as Nathan said, they spent so many resources on Galen, it's like this is an investment. You can't leave. We just we just yeah. poured billions of dollars into you. You're staying. So there's We're gonna the, find you. Yeah, yeah. It makes and they spend enough time with Lyra too. Yes, because how much of it was was her really grounding him? Mm-hmm. And even when we see her out of the picture, how he starts more and more to reobsess. Yeah, with the research and miss miss the other the other things that are going on. I mean, he's being played. He's being I mean, he's being given exactly what he wants mm-hmm. and pitched in exactly the way that he wants. He's being wooed by Krennic the entire time. And the entire time, Krennic is just so manipulative and such a liar and so two-faced that, you know, it almost makes you, like, look in yourself and be like, oh, man, I really hope that, like, the way that I try and influence people doesn't across, come across, like, Krennic, like, the way that, like, uh, it's so obvious to us yeah. reading that he's mm-hmm. absolutely just, like, trying to get this person to like him or do what he wants him to do. Like, I really hope that I'm not this way when I ha- when I interact with real people, too. But Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, my point was just about Lyra. Um, she she constantly brought in the morality. And it's, there's even tons of, like, character building established on, like, she she's enough of an intellectual that she understands his research, but he still has to dumb it down a little bit. Yeah. But, like you, you, you want to feel equally yoked with somebody. You want a, a partner or a spouse who's able to comprehend what you do to a degree. Maybe not like the total degree. Maybe Trent can speak to more of this because he's actually married. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, you know, I'm sure like Christina doesn't understand like what you do exactly, programming, whatnot. But like, I mean, I, I know that you can you can talk to her because she's smart. You know yeah. about about whatever you're working on, and she, you know. I, so I, I see like- that in Lyra. I like, yeah, I like showing her stuff, and she, you know, she gets it to the point where she's like, "I, this is something that I'm glad that you enjoy," <laughs> and and, uh, and you know that that's something that's a big part of this book as well as that relationship where it's like your 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 significant other has an interest that is so deeply ingrained in their heart that's a passion <clears throat> for them that you can't just ask them like, "Hey, give it up," you know, like that's that's another realistic part mm-hmm. of this relationship between the Ursos. Yeah, she she really realizes that he needs to be doing research of some kind. Like, at one point, he even... Like, it shows his dedication to the family that he's willing to work anywhere just to get a job to provide. But at the same time, she realizes, hey, this job is not for him. He should really be doing energy research. So as soon as that offer from Krennic comes for a better job, they don't look deeper. Hey, is there an underlying... What's the, what's the catch here? They're just like, oh, yes, get away from this job. And it was such smart maneuvering on Krennic's part that he knew, I'm going to give them a job. They're going to think that it's great, but it's really going to be terrible because then they'll want another job. Like, it was so brilliant. 
Like, yeah, that I, was a smart move. And like, Krennic is not someone who has like a skill. Like, he doesn't know particularly a lot about engineering, but he is so good at manipulating people and also good at developing <laughs> friendships and developing connections with people. And I really enjoy that reading. It, he reminds me of a more evil version of Professor Slughorn from Harry Potter and that he's like he's constantly networking he's constantly trying to bring more people in and to cash in favors and you see Krennic he kind of has a rivalry with Tarkin so it's not the same but he's he's developing a relationship with Masamita which I really liked because we have not gotten enough Masamita in the canon and you have him and then you also have uh, him bring in Has Obit and he's trying to uh, work with Galen and so he has all his hands and all these things so that if one of them fails the other ones are working so it all works out for him so <laughs> a, real, a real cynical part of me like and this is not true of every company this is not true of every manager <laughs> but a real cynical part of me clearly sees the corporate parallels of you get the CEO who's just like omnipresent but not present at all like yeah. he's mentioned and you're like terrified of him <laughs> and, then, and then your middle manager doesn't have any skills and doesn't really understand the talent but they are good at manipulation mm-hmm. and so there's a there's a tier of uh, corporate speak or whatever and it's like the people on the bottom are the losers because they always lose out and then there's the people in the middle who are uh, oh I forget their their titles but essentially they are like the the hopeless ones because they think that mm-hmm. they can always keep getting better. And then there's the sharks at the top. Anyway, <laughs> that's a very cynical approach. I do not recommend that. It's very depressing <laughs> to, to view the world in that way. But it, you can't help but think of that in terms of the empire because it is it is very oppressive. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I loved that part of this book. Maybe I am changing my mind about this book as I talk about it. Um, but yeah. I love that part of this book where normally you think the it's like, why is the empire like just kind of kicking rocks around with this, like playing footsie with Galen, they should just point a gun at his head. But that's not how Galen works. He is a man who has to be in it in order to mm-hmm. like, the, honestly, the resource of intelligence seems to be at such a high demand that you can't just strong arm it. And so that it's interesting to see the empire's approach to that. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, you, I think the, one of the reasons that I particularly like this book is is because the story itself is not a thrilling or uh, yeah let's let's read this story but it does it leads to questions it's thought provoking it has all these connections it has it just has some some meat to it and at the <clears throat> same time it for me it fixes a lot of like questions that I had in Rogue One. Or, or would have had had I not read this book first, because <laughs> um, uh, be, and and I, we should talk about that because I read this book the day it came out but he, originally, but you guys you're seeing it now, and so you're mm-hmm. seeing it through a little bit of a tint because you already saw yes. Rogue One, so you can't possibly go back to the first time you saw Rogue One, having known this, you can rewatch it now and have some of it seep in, but you couldn't then. And that's why Lucasfilm really, like with the Journey 2 books for The Force Awakens, and they were like, you should read these, but they didn't make people, like they were like, everyone read Catalyst. Everyone, you need to read Catalyst. They, they use the words essential reading. And I think that's essentially right because there's, it, it really develops 
the Orson and Galen relationship, and it shows why the prologue is so important, and it shows why it's so devastating when when Krennic when 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 Krennic finally sees Galen's deception. So to me, it added so much. Do you guys? I'll start with you, Trent. Do you feel you view Rogue One differently because you've read the book now? Absolutely, I would one hundred percent agree with that. Uh, similar to Inferno Squad, I went in th- with the game. I went back and like as soon as I set the book down, I booted up Disney Plus. I watched that opening scene where Krennic lands on the planet uh, yeah. with or the Ursos are hiding, and even before they talk, there's just that weight mm-hmm. on the relationship, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, that's good acting. So yeah, <laughs> I to- I totally do. I I skipped around to all the Mads Mikkelsen scenes, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And it, it just it added so much more weight to that. I did skip around to the Krennic and uh, Tarkin scenes, and it was good. Uh, so for me, absolutely. That's Nathan, wonderful. What about, I'm, what about I'm, you, Nathan? Well, I actually was thinking about the same thing, and I haven't gone back yet to, to watch that opening, but it's clear. I probably will feel better about it. I definitely wasn't as connected with, I mean, when Galen is actually killed in Rogue One. Yeah. I did not feel as much as I probably will feel. Mm-hmm. If I if I go back again, because um, <clears throat> I'm a lot more connected to him. And to be completely honest, I did not remember reading the book. What happened to Lyra? I was like, huh? Oh yeah, did she, did she die in the opening? <laughs> scene? I don't even remember. <laughs> like the whole time, I'm not even sure right now because that's that's how that's how I, I just really haven't paid as much attention as Jonathan has. Which I think if if I recall, that was in your top three Star Wars movies was Rogue One. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So one of his top threes. I did remember texting Jonathan as I was reading this. I was trying just to to oh, yes. piece things together. This was this was I think well, your point was that this was released in 2016. Yeah, is that correct? So I know this is early on in the Disney era of things, and certainly as far as the book era of things. Um, one of the questions might have been like, why are we? Why are there already you know stormtroopers like uh, like two months after mm-hmm. the Empire is formed? When, you know, well, we recently got Bad Batch where we still have clone troopers for months and months. Um, mm-hmm. And they're definitely not called stormtroopers. They are starting to recruit, you know, but they're not called stormtroopers yet. They're, they're given DK numbers, but they're not given instead of CT numbers, but they're not given stormtrooper designation. So that was one of my questions. And the, I think they were, what was the other one? Oh, oh you asked about well, Stardust. Stardust. That happened. Because so you asked it and I couldn't remember. And the reason I couldn't remember is because I know it from some of the comics and from some of the other material. But that happens. He doesn't rename it Stardust until after his uh, um, uh, after he goes back with the Empire Later on, you know, in between the prologue of Rogue One and the main part of Rogue One, that's when he names it Stardust. And it's actually, it does get addressed. I don't, I don't have the copy somewhere, but it's Rogue, in the Rogue One novelization. They do address well, here's that. Here's my problem with that, okay? And Trent, tell me if you agree, but like, so Galen comes in and they've already got like, I don't know, what, five, six years at least on the Death Star of just developing, before, like building. Before that, who knows how long. But like, so that's when Galen is able to like, come in and name it Project Stardust and just everybody from that point on is just like, oh yeah, let's just call it Project Stardust even though we've called it all these other random things for six years, you know, and it'll be Project Stardust forever now. You know, it's a secretive thing, but okay. Jonathan well, really wanted to say something. Yeah, I, th- I think Jonathan, you're, uh, you, I think you have the answer. But so uh, that's instead, because instead of the Project Stardust you. does not refer to the whole <laughs> Death Star. It refers to the production of the super laser. 
and specifically into <laughs> and it and it even goes further. It's even more referring to the exhaust port. Um, uh, but and I did I did go back to look for this, and you have it's originally called Project Celestial Power, and then they also yep. call yep. it. Um, why am I blanking? There's, there's a second name that I'm not remembering right now. But there's different names for different parts of the, the Death Star. And then you have the overall project, which I'm forgetting its title. So it's not... Stardust is not specifically so the whole Death project Star. Spaceball? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, what, that's what it should be. Um, but well, yeah, they, they talked about that in the book. They, they have to piecemeal. Like when they're, when mm-hmm. Pogger the Lesser is talking about... Or maybe it's somebody else. Uh, they're talking about... Yeah, we can do this. We can do all of it except for the la- the laser part is going to be too difficult. We yeah. can't do that. And, and, and so they have to piecemeal it. And you realize why it took they were able to build the second Death Star so fast is that the thing that dragged that was a, that was a question for yeah, sure. The thing that dragged the first Death Star was not its overall production, getting all the resources there because they would have had it done within a few years. The problem was the super laser, which is why. Even by the end of the Clone Wars, they've got a significant chunk done. And then by the end of this book, they have a significant chunk done. The one thing that they, it's like, it's like they're basically the Empire decides there's no reason to have the Death Star if we can't destroy planets with it. So the, the Empire basically it's inoperative yeah. until the laser is done. And it takes until the events of Rogue One. So it takes them another like 15 years later after this book, which is why it takes so long. But once they built the laser... And they destroy this Death Star. Well, uh, Return of the Jedi is four years after uh, uh, New Hope, and they have plenty of time to build the Death Star then. If they kept some of their scientists, I'm sure that they need. But those guys probably would have worked with Galen. Some of them, but the the research was still there. Galen never um, sabotages his research. Even in the book, he even says, if I sabotage the research, it'd give them more of a reason to go after me. So when they kill Galen and his team, the researchers, they could still just use it again. I guess they, as far as the copper crystals anyway, they they definitely had to find more. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I know many, many times in some of the books we've read, there's just like tons of like dunium being mined. And it's such Mm -hmm. a big deal. Like, there's got to be a serious drain of resources after we lose two Death Stars. Oh, yeah. All of these planets are like, you took everything we've got. <laughs> we don't have any more resources. Like, you've mined it all. And it's part Should have done that whole renewable energy thing. That would have been, that would have been the great idea. Thanks, Galen. And you um, see, that's part of the reason why in the New Republic, in the Aftermath <laughs> trilogy... Mon Mothma does not feel that they can sustain the, mili- the, the, the New Republic military as it, as it is when, when the war ends because they've already drained so much resources as part of the war. And so that's why she m- makes her move to basically demilitarize except for a, like the 20 percent of, of, the, of the troops. So it all since you bring that up, who funds who funds the First Order? Um, well, uh, I don't want to spoil that, so. Oh, okay. okay. That's you. You well. do have to read the books for that. Um, <laughs> anyway, but there was oh, there was one funny thing. Al Qaeda. No. I'm, no. Not. not <laughs> okay. Okay. There's there's a really funny <laughs> moment in the book where uh, Krennic goes to this planet where uh, Galen's uh, scientist friends oh, all I'm, are let on. Me guess. America was there, and we left all of our weapons, and the First Order took them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's actually that's actually gonna have to part of the out, answer. <laughs> no, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually okay. That is great. That all is right. that is actually part of the answer. Anyway, the um, 
back to my the joke I was trying to build up to. Uh, the there, so Cranek goes <laughs> to this planet where all the scientist friends are, and he's basically like, "All right, guys, try to build a super laser. What you guys doing?" They're like, "We can't do it," and he's like, "Why?" And it's like, "We don't know how to do this." And they and one of them even says, "Why don't we just have Cran or uh, or uh, uh, Urso do it?" And he's like, "Well, Urso's busy with other things. He can't do this." And they're like, "Oh, well, we can't." And it just reminded me of Iron Man when he says, "Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave." Well, I'm not Tony Stark. <laughs> that's that's the vibe exactly. I got from that. And so when I was reading that, well, yeah. anyway, the whole the whole facility blew up. Yeah, a bunch of, like visual. A whole and the city. empire's all like the empire's like, oh, we'll just you know, glass accident. Yeah, it was industrial a, accident. Yeah, it was nothing. It was just you know whatever. Which yeah, all of our scientists survived. We're fine. Mm-hmm. They all they all got out from the you know forget about the people. It's yeah, a okay. it's supposed it's to be a reminiscent of a small smaller version of Chernobyl, how the Russian government really tried to to oh, yeah. gloss over the events of I Chernobyl. So there's a, he's he's pulling in his historical mm. references to make this mm. book work. Um, yeah. John, Jonathan, you're making me like this book more anymore. <laughs> exactly my hope. Um, uh, you know what I was thinking about as I was reading? So Krennic, we really get a lot of Krennic in this. Mm-hmm. And he tries, he tries so hard to be you know, scheming yeah. to be like one step ahead style thinking and Tarkin to a degree. Cause we yeah. already know the rivalry between Tarkin and Krennic. It's still going on way on in the Thrawn novels. It's going on all the way in Rogue One later on. So mm-hmm. it's going on for 20 years yeah. um, <clears throat> at least. But this whole time as I'm reading Krennic, I'm going like, this is the dude who uh, I, a character I actually grew to like. Assistant Director Ronan from Thrawn Treason absolutely worships, like, yeah. thinks he can do no wrong. Yeah. And here Krennic is, like, messing up everything, almost, and, like, basically taking constant, you know, every everything that goes wrong, he's getting, you know... Of course, he does get a promotion, but, like, he's not anywhere near the rank of director like he is later on. He's not, like, this untouchable genius. And, like, just... Gosh, Ronan absolutely like kisses the ground he walks on. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking about? I'm yeah. like, I could not stop thinking about Ronan and how similar he is to Krennic, but in some ways, like Ronan was even like superior and smarter yeah. to Krennic. <laughs> never never <laughs> meet your heroes. Exactly. It, um, the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, Ronan, he would have done this even better than that. But well, there <laughs> there was one moment in the book that I thought was absolute genius on Krennic's part. At the end of the book, he's being scolded by Masamita, and he says, "Well, you're going to have to accept a demotion." And he says, "No, I don't think I will." And Masamita's <laughs> like, "What?" And he's like, you, you refuse us. And he's like, here's why. It'll look bad. And we don't want things to look bad. We want things to look like they're all on track. In fact, you should give me a promotion for this. And it's like, <laughs> um, uh, it, it, that reminded me. Rear Admiral will do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rear Admiral will <laughs> do it. You know. uh, there's a scene in uh, 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 True Grit. The new, the new True Grit, where the girl is uh, is uh, negotiating for the horses, and she sells the horses back at a high price, and then buys one of them back at a really really low price, <laughs> and and he's like, oh dear, is this another deal? And that's what I was like, Masamita, he's just steamrolling over him. He's like, yeah yeah, promote me here, promote me here, and I was like, I see how you got to director. That was pretty pretty steep climb. Manipulated mm. his way up there. Exactly. So I just thought that was I, brilliant. 
but I, I just wonder, why did I relate so much to Assistant Director Ronan in Throne Treason? And Krennic here, he seemed somewhat distant, even though I'm reading a lot of character moments from him. Mm-hmm. I never got into his head. I really never connected with him the way... I never, I never felt his emotions. I just yeah. felt the reports... And the, you know, just the, the intellectualness of it, uh, you know, yeah. of this vague pressure being put on down on him, mm-hmm. you know. And, and even the Emperor, like, oh, the word is the Emperor is displeased. You've had all this time and you can't get Galen Erso to do what you want. I'm like, well, you first off, you, you freaking haven't told him yet. <laughs> you've been like, <laughs> you've been this whole time trying to woo him and get him on your side and get him doing this research. And you haven't even told him what you're really doing. And Kunig's like, oh, I'll eventually tell him. I'll tell him eventually. Well, Just, he's, you know, everybody's on my back about this. Even the emperors are like, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever. I'll get to it. You know. Well, it's in this. It's because uh, Krennic uh, knows the second he uses the words weapons, he's out. He Galen's yeah. out, and so he has Which to he make him think. For one, he has to make him think he's not using weapons, and for two, when he does start veering into weapons territory. He has to make him think it's for the greater good, you know, kill one person, save a hundred, that type of thing. And so he does, you see Galen's like, uh, meter he's pacifist versus war person. You see it slowly edging over. And then as you said with Lyra, she just yanks him back and he starts yeah. going over it and she yanks him back. And so you see that she's, she's the compass and he has a good moral compass, but sometimes, you know, like all of us, he goes astray. So, we haven't talked about um, Haas. Yeah, Haas, Opit, or Haas, Haas, or Haas, Haas whatever they do. They do both in the books. His name was. Which I wrote this down in our notes, and I I remember reading this. I was like, wait a second, did I just read that? There is literally a moment where the writer says has had had, and I was like, don't do that to the <laughs> English language. <laughs> <laughs> that's just oh, not that's right. That's terrible. <laughs> like he, he knew that was gonna. That. Tick people off. He's he only did it once. In his defense, he only did it one time. But I think he knew. I'm just gonna put this in. This is funny. Has had it. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, well, I so I don't know if you want to talk about uh, has for a little bit. Uh, but I, I have a question as well for okay. for Jonathan uh, after this. Okay. So so Nathan, you have points to make about has. Well, he was actually interesting, mm-hmm. but I wanted more, and I kept yeah. getting this like. <clears throat> I kept getting, like, so, okay, really cool that you've got this, like, you know, kind of rogue environment with bounty hunters, or they're probably a mixture of just scum, but some of them are at least just, like, just, I would say, in the vein of a solo, a, you know, an undercover smuggler, dealer, type, transporter, general goods person, go-getter, and he's got all these jobs, he doesn't mm-hmm. know, he just knows, don't ask questions. And then even we get, like, you know, some interactions with other people that are like smuggler types at these bars. And that's kind of cool. And I'm enjoying this. I'm like, okay, we're starting to learn about Haas. Like what's going to happen? Like, you know, he's going to lose his jobs. You know, what, what's up with this, you know, the money. And we got this whole thing with the, the veterans and I and like, or the veterans association or whatever mm-hmm. that it was supposed to provide him with the yeah. I and he could afford it, but then he could, uh, anyway, all that was very interesting. And then it just, didn't really tie in or pay off the way that I was hoping that it would like, and I wanted more of that. Actually, did you probably, probably Trent enjoyed that stuff too. I thought it was good. I, I just didn't go anywhere. It didn't build to anything. Trent, you want to? Yeah. Yeah. So like I th- that was part of the book where I, I think it was 
for me was the weakest point because I, I my expectations were crazy high because I was like, oh, cool, a smuggler, like somebody who's just, you <laughs> yeah. know, gonna, it's going to be really cool and, and have some cool Western moments or something like that. And, you know, like Nathan said, <laughs> it, kinda, was nothing. it feels like it peters out, which, you know, I get it. You know, that's part of it. And and I guess I was just hopeful. I was like, oh, OK, here's the action. We got the cool manipulation relationship stuff going on with Krennic and Urso. Here is here's the, the scummy scum and villainy of. Nah, they just did the thing. <laughs> And then the people died. Yep, exactly. So, <laughs> so, the, so that's what that we got. It. So Haz serves three main purposes in the book. One purpose is to provide uh, a, a perspective separate from our heroes. He needed someone to have the audience's eyes, someone who's not the complete good, like Lyra, and not the complete bad, like Krennic, someone who's in the middle, which is why mm-hmm. we have Haz. Second reason we have Haz is because... All authors do this. All Italian authors do this. They want to create someone original for every book because they want to be able to have mm-hmm. an original character. So he created this original character compared to some of Lucino's other original characters. He's not necessarily as memorable, but he's, you know, he's a good original character. But the third reason I think is the most important, which is that he provides a connection to Saw Gerrera. If they had added in Saw Gerrera at the end without Haas... It wouldn't have worked, and you and Saw could not have played the role that Haz does because Saw is already part of the rebel. He's already rebelling at this time, so he can't be a smuggler, and also because of the timeline stuff. So they needed a new original character to, to to serve all those purposes, which is why they had Haz. But I agree that he his story does peter out. I was really confused in the last chapter. I was like, what are his motivations? Wait, is he serving Krennic? Is he serving Tarkin? Is he serving himself? I didn't know. And I was reminded of the community episode where they have the, the theater professor and they are all like shooting each other. And then, oh, no, you teamed up with him. Oh, no, you teamed up with him. <laughs> I was like, yes. wait a second. <clears throat> what? Hmm. And then it was the last page of Haas's thing. I was like, oh, I see what you're... Okay, okay, I gotcha. Like, it took me till the end to figure out where his uh, allegiances lie. Yeah. He was uh, funny, though. He, he was like help- an everyman type, but mm-hmm. he just was... Yeah, didn't deliver in the end. Go ahead, Jeff. And he was he was essentially part of their escape, right? Their yeah. so's... Mm-hmm. Like he helped yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, he helped them plan Yeah. That. But he, okay. he, wasn't, whole- he himself was not the one who did it. They yeah. he he arranged because he had to meet with Tarkin or with with Krennic. He arranged for Guerrera to do it, which is why Guerrera has a relationship with the Ursos, which is why he's the one that answers their call in the beginning of Book One. And that really leads me to like Saw himself. I, I'm just gonna say like his depiction here is to me vastly different than any of his other depictions. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, think, I it's, think it's closer to Clone Wars than it is to a Rogue One, I would he's say. He's far less radical. But far then again, less radical. Then again, he wasn't that radical in this time period. We see him in uh, Bad Batch, <clears throat> and he was still kind of part of his, like, the, he seems kind of like his Bad Batch self here, because they're about the same time frame. To a degree. Yeah, he, I, seems, he seems less, I mean, I'm just going to be... Blunt here. He seems less insane. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. And, yeah. In Rogue, in Rogue One, he just seems crazy, and that crazy persona is what carries over to Inferno Squad with the the um, oh, what's the name of their group? It begins with a P. Uh, the, yeah, the Partisans. 
partisans. partisans. So like, there's this. The dreamers, but they. That's the. That's the. Yeah, that's the later one. So yeah, there's this like there's this like uh, infamy that Saul Guerrero has after he dies, where he's like he was the crazy cult leader, like not cult, but you yeah, know, yeah. sort of cult. And in this Turning one, the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> in this one, he was more. It was more like Clone Wars. Alex Jones. Oh. <laughs> I'm now imagining. Get your it. supplements. Saul Guerrero supplements. Get in the middle. <laughs> I now, I now, I'm imagining a Star Wars version of Alex Jones with it, like the Emperor is building a Death Star to blow us all up, and it turns out he's right. They'll tell you it's a conspiracy theory. It's coming. They're making clones on an ocean island. <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, you guys were talking about Insane Saw Guerrera. If you would like to read about Insane Saw Guerrera, you can read about him in Rebel Rising. This was the book, the YA novel from Disney Lucasfilm Press that came out after Rogue One that bridges the gap between the prologue of Rogue One when, when Saw grabs Jin and the rest of Rogue oh, One. Yeah. And so this story tells basically how he trained up Jin and he is messed up. Like, not just what he does to his enemies, but what he does to his friends in this book is messed up. And so you see his prog- his just downward slide into just being a horrible guy. Um, uh, and so, and also this book, of course, shows a lot of Jin because she's the main character. Um, you see Jin grow up and you see why she's so messed up in Rogue One because she had a messed up... Uh, <laughs> Uh, dad, for, yeah. so anyway, so that's a, uh, if you ever, if you, if, if you think this is interesting and s- I just added that to my list, actually, oh, good. <laughs> that seems, that sounds really good. That sounds like, that sounds like everything that when I started Catalyst, I wanted Catalyst to be, yeah. but now, but through this conversation live on this podcast, Trent changes his mind. <laughs> um, now I'm like appreciating Catalyst and it's I just, I just, oh my gosh. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I, re- I thought re-brise. Catalyst would, would be about Jen more. Too. Yeah, was, she was very, very unimportant. She was just there, like doing kid stuff the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was kind of an anchor point for timeline to figure yeah, out exactly. That is yeah. that is accurate. And also, there is one scene where they're in the apartment where they're all talking, and Jim Jin comes out and talks to them, and then Galen takes Jin back to bed. That's the scene that you see in Rogue One in the flashback, um, uh, very, oh. very, very briefly. And yeah, so that's another that's, right. that's another example of why this book is superior compared with its other books that were tie like were tie-ins to the movies like to The Force Awakens or Last Jedi cuz they did not give those not only did they those authors not allowed to read the script they weren't allowed to know anything about the movie unless it was like a specific little either Easter egg of, oh, there's this character in the background, you can use him. Or, oh, there's this little ship or planet, you can use that. But they weren't allowed to know anything of what was happening. But James Lucino had the full script of the movie, and they actually showed him clips of it as they were shooting it so that he would know where the film was going, which is why yeah. this book is able to tie in so well. And I, that's why I'm like... All off, all tie-in like, material needs to do what they did here because it worked so well in that regard that this doesn't seem totally unrelated. The other books seem totally unrelated. Man, that's that's amazing that they gave him that access to that script. Well, he had to, you know, he had to sign well, two contracts: one that mentioned his dominant kidney, and the other which mentioned which was his more <laughs> valuable child. So <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> That's great, Jonathan. That's Timothy uh, Zahn's joke, by the way, not mine. I, I, <laughs> I like it. 
what do you what is, in terms of if I were to say, well, here's what you would do to improve this book. I think the main thing is the type of dialogue that you got Timothy Zahn to write and Thrawn treason between even at that time Krennic and Tarkin, mm-hmm. who were going to judge the threats. And to a degree, Savit and you know Ronan was in the he was in the mix too. Yeah, and of course Thrawn. Thrawn was in the middle of all of that. But the tension between Thrawn or sorry between Krennic and and Tarkin was at its absolute breaking point in Thrawn Treason, and obviously because of like the timeline too, because this is the week before like the events of Rogue One, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, but there's so much tension. It's beautifully done. That wasn't translated here. That didn't come yeah. across in the same way. Dialogue-wise, the rivalry-wise, the the smugness. I mean, gosh, there's smugness. so much, you know. Oh, gosh. Just all of the passive-aggressive, like, tones and the way that was phrased. Mm-hmm. That would have elevated this book quite a, quite a lot for yeah. me and, and made up for some of the lack of action. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely on that all of the points that Jonathan's made has definitely probably changed Transmind as well as my own, but... The exposition of this is on point, and the amount of detail he had to organize, I have huge respect for, because there's so many things that you, you talk about that he brought in. And for somebody like you, this is right up your alley. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt. No doubt. If anybody, like, that's the type of book that Jonathan gravitates to, and if you do the same thing, then, gosh, this is just right what you want. Um, but you would have enjoyed a little bit more of what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I think you are right that that is one of the weaker points of the book. Um, I think that also part of the weakness of this book is that it was partially rushed um, because they had to get it in. Because not only did they have to get it in, they had to get it in before the movie because they wanted it to come out before the movie. So he had a, he had a definite date because you, if we're talking about production of timelines, they didn't start. They didn't finish shooting Rogue One until um, uh, June, and even then they had to go back for a couple more weeks and do reshoots. Typically, you have to have a novel turned in at least eight or nine months before the novel's supposed to come out because they have to go through all the edits, and then they have to go through the actual printing of the book, which takes longer than the making of a movie. So... This book was probably turned in the first two or three months, maybe four months of 2016. The movie's middle of production, still still shooting, so and they're still making changes to the story because they changed the ending. So this book really, they the, when the editing of this book happened super fast, and it's impressive that it even that they even got it out on time, in, in my opinion. So. I guess I, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything from my notes because there were a lot of notes. Um, uh, what, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I had a real quick question because uh, Nathan mentioned it up top, but I didn't know if because he, he kind of mentioned ca- ca- like cabarology, crystallology, yeah. or whatever it's called. Yeah. Were you, like, is that something you really into? Crystallography. No, sorry, sorry. sorry. Crystallography. Crystallography. Is that something that you're uh, like you're familiar with? Because I don't know a whole lot about that, and obviously this book's heavy with it. So around this time in 2016, they started doing a lot of projects with uh, uh, kyber crystals, and we were like, mm-hmm. "Hmm, this is kind of curious." Um, one month before we had the release of the Ahsoka novel, which had quite a lot of lore on kyber crystals, and then you had this book, and then you had some comics that came out, uh, the Darth Vader comics that had some kyber crystal stuff. So a bunch happened at once regarding kyber crystals. Uh, and I find it interesting. It is the, the 
design of oh well this is if you if you do it this way you'll get this power that part of it was not as interesting to me but the ideas of ooh let's take this use of crystals for power let's use it for weapons that part of it i really liked because it made it more practical to me yeah it definitely bridges uh, one of my friends talks about star wars he's like it's more sci fantasy than sci fi yeah. or science fan yeah science fiction and so that this is where it kind of bridges that gap where you know with the, the like palpatine invader are you know literally using kyber crystals for in a fantasy in a fantasy sense and then you know have orson or not orson uh, urso like mathematically and scientifically trying to latch onto it for energy purposes. So yeah. it's that weird bridge there between fantasy and fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, well, unless anyone else has any more notes, I thought I would jump to our, um, uh, like ratings for the the book. Uh, I'll go first because I don't know if you guys changed it all one way or the other. Uh, I I believe I've always been about the same with this book. It is one of the best, while not my favorite canon novel. It's in the top ten, but it's it's not my favorite. But it is the best example of a tie-in book because it does ex- it answers so many questions, but it doesn't. You you could still watch Rogue One without this, but it, it enhances it so much. So I give this book personally. Probably an eight point nine or a nine point oh. It's it's in that wow. category. I know it's I know that's high compared to some others. Some what you guys will probably say, but that's for me because it answers so many questions. So, anyone else want to go? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go next. Uh, so I, I'm looking at my Goodreads uh, <laughs> list of books here because since Jonathan has sparked these. Uh, <gasps> interest in Star Wars books, I have yes. had to keep up with all of them. I don't, it's, yes. There were so many, they're hard to keep track of. So when I finished <laughs> Catalyst, uh, I rated it three stars out of five originally. Okay. But here I'm going to change it right now from three to four okay. out of five. Uh, or if you want to use the 10 scale, uh, eight. Because uh, it's honestly, thinking back on it now, you know, it's weird. I didn't have a good time reading it, but I have a great time remembering it yes <laughs> that is well, that you is talked about it with somebody who really knows a lot about it so yeah yeah there's if, someone if who Jonathan wasn't here this conversation would go totally <laughs> totally differently yeah <laughs> um there but but you bring up a point there are some books that i love reading them at the time but mm-hmm. when i think back on them i'm like ah, that's not fun and then there yeah. are other books where i don't enjoy reading it but i think back on it and I'm like that was really interesting so that, that is funny, yeah. that does affect it like time Time is important to to to, to some books because it can and and movies too. There are mm-hmm. certain um, more recent Star Wars films that I have thought, gone out of the theaters thinking one thing and <clears throat> later on been like, oh, so yeah, yeah, totally. All right, Nathan, you're up. Hot seat. So uh, funny enough, like as I was talking about Thrawn Treason, it just made me so excited earlier. Just remembering that novel yeah. and and just how much I loved it. And uh, I'm not going to think about this one in the same terms, unfortunately. Uh, It wasn't really for me as much. But um, with the understanding that I was given through y'all's discussion and what I gleaned, I feel I can probably give it between a six and a half and a seven for my rating. Um, And I'm trying to be generous there. I know it's not not for me, but I'm not going to like be Jonathan and rate it super low <laughs> like he did on Visions. So 
All right. <laughs> yeah, that digging. Uh, I didn't rate all of them super low. <laughs> I rated some of them really high. Well, even after listening to myself and Marlon and and explaining to you the purposes, you were like, "It's trash." <laughs> I never used the word trash. No, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't. Anyway, you just. But that's actually. That. I am surprised that you that you would put it that way. Uh, I'll ask this: How do you feel it compares to uh, the first and second Thrawn books, Thrawn and Thrawn Alliances? So we can get like a well, where your overall well, ranking is. Alliances was was definitely the low point. Um, this novel in many ways was a more complete novel than, than alliances. And hearing mm-hmm. that this was rushed as well as alliances obviously was rushed. Um, but alliances also struggled with the fact that he did not know he was doing that second novel. He knew, he did know he was doing treason. So he was able to properly foreshadow and set everything up, but he did not know alliances was happening right away. So this book is probably more, I think more just well aligned throughout top, top to bottom, but it doesn't have, some of the action you don't get like there's not a single bit of Darth Vader in here that I, I wanted the I wanted Vader that would I been. just wanted Vader he's mentioned <clears throat> he's mentioned and that was cool but I wanted more Vader I wanted Vader um, wow. Jonathan's consulting his library right his now mm-hmm. that, well I had, to, I had to provide so if you like some of the concepts of Tarkin in this and liked and, and want Vader and Tarkin together I would suggest the Tarkin novel however mm-hmm. If you thought this book didn't have action, <laughs> this book does not have action. Well, it, it does, but it's so slow. The first, I have, there, there, this, that's, ch- sorry. Are the characters interesting? Oh, are absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. The first See, chapter. It, it can make up for that. Yeah. The first <laughs> chapter of the book has, this, this book's first chapter has turned off more readers than any other Star Wars book's first chapter. Other than maybe Aftermath. Aftermath might, might, might have, but this one did. Because it takes the first chapter is terrible. The rest of the book, second chapter on, is great. But the first chapter is horrible. And so, so many people just stopped reading. But this one doesn't have much action. This is set suit like a couple of, couple of months after the events of this. So they're very uh, quick on the heels. And this one was written first, but you can see some of Tarkin's storyline in this follows from Catalyst, so he had been setting this up. Same author, yeah, James Lucino. So... Okay. Oh, that's good. That's good. Same author. Yeah. yeah, That'll help. Um, The sad thing is that Catalyst is James Lucino's last book because after writing Catalyst, he started having some health issues, and so he's essentially retired, even though he's a big seller. He's one of those Star Wars authors that his books usually sell really well, New York Times bestseller material. He's just he just can't write much anymore because his health's declined because he's he's in his uh, I think now late 70s. So he's mm. he's pretty old. So it is sad that we probably will never again get another uh, Star Wars book from him. But he wrote 10. So he's got a pretty good. Uh, he's got a good legacy. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Well, that was good. A great discussion. Thank you, Trent, for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thank you. A, always, always, always a pleasure. So. All right. Uh, you can find us on Simplecast. It's late. I'm tired. Uh, sorry. I had, a, I, I had a stressful day today. <laughs> it's, you can find us Aww. on Simplecast. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts. You can find us on 
uh, Stitcher and uh, iHeartRadio and Radio.com. You can find our Facebook page, Two Sons of Tatooine. You can find my book reviews at Roku Depot, and you can find my YouTube channel uh, at, by searching the name Jonathan Cohn. But until next time, I'm Jonathan. I'm Nathan, a.k.a. NP Bro. And I'm Trent. And thank you for listening to another episode, Two Sons of Tatooine.